Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Hey, friends. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy. Thanks for joining us this week with a connected thread of an episode. Stacy, this week you're bringing us the riveting, I had no idea how cool this was, story of Aviatrix Poncho Barnes. It's almost like she forest gumped through early aviation history. Kind of. Trailblazer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trailblazer. Fascinating person. You have. This week, I am covering the actress that portrayed Poncho Barnes in the CBS made-for-TV movie, <laughs> airing in October of 1988, Valerie Bertinelli, who, after a very long run with rocker Eddie Van Halen, called it quits after two decades of marriage. Mm-hmm. Before we jump into that, let's take out the magic mirror. Sure. And who do we see that we need to give all the love and thanks and praise to this week who joined us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces? Absolutely. Big thanks to Sandra K, Susanna, Shelly Ann, Kelly W, Christine E, Elizabeth G, Jenny Ellen, Ginger, Aaron J, Christine O, Tori C, Angela, and Holly P. Holy cats. Thanks for your support over there. We can't thank you enough. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Sunday listener, for coming back and spending your time with us for yet again this week on this wild journey of an episode. What do we need to do now, Alicia? We got to go, go, go. So, Stacy, you're flying us into the trashy skies today. I am. Today, I have what I think is a quintessentially American character that I think most of us have never heard of. Shout out to our friend Jeremy, who is a pilot, for bringing Poncho Barnes, a foul-mouthed female pioneer of the aviation age, to our attention. Aside from those wonderful descriptors, she also founded a fly-in resort and kind of watering hole in the Mojave Desert outside of what would become Edwards Air Base. And then she was sort of like the personification of this nexus in the first batch of test pilots with guys like Chuck Yeager and all of the all the stuff. Uh, there was also, it was movie stars, writers. I mean, it was just this odd mixture of everyone notable of the age. From listening to you do your research this week, I think I can attest that Jeremy nailed it. <laughs> She sounds like a fascinating character. She seriously seems to have been one of the most likable people in the world for most of her life. And she just accumulated friends, lovers, husbands all throughout. She lived her life with great abandon. So we are going to talk about Florence Lowe Barnes, who would become known as Poncho. She was born July 22nd, 1901 in Pasadena, California. Interesting. Her grandfather, who lived to 1913, was a man named Thaddeus Lowe. He was a self-taught scientist who had become a balloonist, an aeronaut, in the 1850s. So when the Civil War broke out, he met with President Lincoln and was like, hey, 
you know, I can get up above a field and I can see what Confederate troops are doing. I can watch their movements. I can. You're joking. I am not. And so (laughs) Thaddeus Lowe became the chief aeronaut of the Union Army Balloon Corps. Holy cats. I didn't know that there was a balloon corps in the Civil War. I don't know how I didn't know that. How are we today years old? Uh, Today years old. So Thaddeus Lowe once launched a balloon from a converted coal barge. I think there was a river escape. I think it was... Anyway, uh, this means that Thaddeus Lowe also gave us history's first aircraft carrier. (laughs) Oh, my. Right? Yeah. Anyway, yes, today years old, the Union had a balloon corps... (laughs) And aircraft carriers. And, you know. Ish. Ish. (laughs) After the war, Thaddeus continued sciencing. He had a particular interest in cooling technology and in hydrogen gas production. He had patents on ice machines, which eventually allowed the shipping of fresh produce and beef over long distances. He became very rich, as you can imagine, and eventually uh, retired to Pasadena with his family, built himself a big old mansion, whatever. So Pancho, his granddaughter, her father is Thaddeus Jr., although he's the seventh of ten children, which oh, makes wow. makes me think there were a lot of daughters in that mix. So he had also married quite well. Pancho had an extremely comfortable childhood. She grew up in a 35-room mansion. Oh, that's, yeah, comfortable, with you a, say. a pool, tennis courts, stables. There was household staff to wait on everybody. She was a tomboy and loved accompanying her father on outdoor adventuring. She was a pretty accomplished equestrian. She loved horseback riding. She has a lifelong love of horses and, and other animals. But it is probably notable that in 1903, when Pancho was two, a couple of bicycle repair guys from Ohio were having a little success at strapping a motorized propeller onto wings out on a North Carolina barrier island. That's the most low-key way I know to describe what the Wright brothers were up to. <laughs> uh. In 1910, her aeronaut grandpa took her to America's first air show. This was an 11-day event in Long Beach, California, that saw more than a quarter million visitors in total. Oh, my God. They were running streetcars every two minutes to just move the people to where they wanted to go. So, again, this is technology that's been around for seven years or something. So... There were dozens of proto-pilots flying to some degree or another various airplane designs. I'm sure a lot of homebrew. I think the lifespan of these people a lot is of quite low. <laughs> uh, the Wright brothers themselves were present for this event, although they were not there in a presenting capacity. They're not the hosts? They attended with their lawyers because several they believed that several of the other pilots had designs that infringed their patents. Oh, my God. Uh, they did not succeed in keeping those pilots grounded. Uh, they would later win some monetary damages, though, for the events of the air show. William Randolph Hearst, Trashy Divorces alum. WR. He, he got his first plane ride at this very event. Uh, there was a gentleman named William Boeing there as well. I'm sure he oh, founded, I've heard of that guy. founded something. Pilots, such as they were, were competing for cash prizes for various things, like shortest takeoff distance, new altitude records, shortest takeoff time, the longest glide when you turn your motor off. Like, it was so new. You could set records all the time. Sure. If you were brave enough to... to- Climb into one of those machines. And try to kill your motor to make sure it starts back up? Sure. 
So as a kid, Poncho was too rambunctious for school officials' tastes. Accounts indicate that she could run faster, spit, curse, and fight better than the boys in her class. She sounds like Tallulah Bankhead. Yeah, she got kicked out of a lot of (laughs) institutions of learning. So her parents bounced her around through... I mean, it's it's Pasadena. And, you know, they're very rich. So she's in these, like, the finest prep schools and getting kicked out. And anyway, she kind of circulates through preparatory and religious institutions of learning as a child. She would run away to Mexico on horseback when the mood struck her. Oh, and like you do. Her parents were just at their wits end. Um, <laughs> run away to Mexico on horseback. Horseback. That's fantastic. Just riding off, literally. I'm out. I got my suitcase. I'm not doing my homework. <laughs> I'm going to take my horse and go. She did somehow manage to graduate from high school, at which point she informed her parents that she was going to become a veterinarian. She loves animals. She's sure, great makes with them. Total she, sense. Yeah, this is something that women did not do in that age. And her mother and her grandmother, like the social standing of the, no, this would be a scandal. They do not do that. So grandma steps in with a truly terrible idea. Hey, Florence. Let's get you married to the rector at my church. Oh, God. And we'll let holy matrimony (laughs) and God sort you out. I don't know any of these people, and I can tell you this is a terrible Terrible idea. idea. So it was the 19-year-old Poncho, still Florence then, was wed to the Reverend C. Rankin Barnes, who was about 10 years her senior. It said that their first kiss was at the wedding, and their only intimacy occurred on their honeymoon, though this did produce... Poncho's only child, Bill. Okay. Came along nine months later. You can imagine how well being a pastor's wife fit Poncho, and she apparently didn't have much of a maternal instinct either, so motherhood was also an unsuited part for her to play. So she just kind of didn't. Thanks, Um, Grandma. mm -hmm. Of course, her pastor's wife role included ample instruction of children. Again, not anything she really cared about. She once bribed a bunch of nine-year-old boys with pocket knives to get them to learn the catechism. (laughs) whatever works (laughs) this was just not her thing she was supposed to be like you know the hostess at teas for the good upright ladies of the congregation and she would just sit there and tell off-color jokes and cuss and just shock them i love her Mm -hmm. she's so trashy she just was not able to do it she was bored as hell But it happened that a nascent Hollywood was brewing a few miles from her home in Pasadena, and she had a friend from her horse circles uh, who had become a director with Universal Studios. Oh, fantastic. There were lots of cowboy movies being made at the time. It was still silent films, you know. Oh, but it's groundbreaking. It's... Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. So her first Hollywood job was to coach one of her horses, whom she had trained expertly, to gallop up to a stagecoach, run alongside it, and allow an actor to drop down onto its saddle before running away, all timed for the camera. Okay. Eventually, she was second camera on shoot. She could, apparently could, like, ride and hold a camera still. Holy cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was working on scripts for her friend. She would ride in some scenes when they needed more riders. She occasionally served as an actress's double. She was never significant in... Hollywood, to be clear, like she didn't go on to become a famous actress or anything, but she was, yeah, she just, anyway, 
She was somewhere where she could love, she could do. She was an inveterate doer, and young Hollywood was a place where a person who said yes could always have their hands in something. The people she was meeting were interesting and doing interesting things, and it paid good money. This is way more fun than catechism. Oh, hell yes. And given the low pay of her Episcopal pastor husband, you know, the $100 a day she was getting to manage her horses and more if she had additional things she was up to um, was (laughs) better. It was better. It helped. She applied the new funds to solve some of the problems she was having at home. She hired a cook, she hired a housekeeper, she hired a nanny. Problem solved. Then hired a rector's wife. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so she got back into the horse show circuit. She uh, was even the riding double for traveling preacher Amy Simple McPherson. Honestly, she was spending a lot more time at her parents' mansion than at the rectory. And while the marriage was pretty clearly a flop... They did not consider divorce. They did not discuss divorce. Poncho liked the status of being a married woman that has its own privileges. And Rankin was very serious about his career in the church and divorcing. I mean, this is the 1920s. This is not going to happen. Yeah, Yeah. that would halt his ascent. When Poncho was 22, her mother died, which, you know, was personally devastating to her. But it did leave her independently wealthy. Mm. She owned that mansion now. That had been passed down through her grandmother. Okay. So her dad, like, took a young bride, like, three years older and moved off to some lake in Northern California. Oh. I'm out. So, yeah, she suddenly owned a lot of real estate. I don't think it's quite accurate to say that she abandoned her family, but it was pretty close to it. She was still working in Hollywood, still running with fabulous friends, but now she had all these houses to party at and all the money in the world to keep the parties going. She became close to silent film star Ramon Navarro. She initially tried to seduce him, but uh, he was gay. And they were just like lifelong friends. Huh. Mm -hmm. She had an affair with a college student she met. This is age appropriate for her. She's 22, 23. She met a USC football player named Marion Morrison. This would become John Wayne in time. This was just an increasingly storied party scene. And the people in Pasadena were talking. This was a scandal. And she didn't care. Um, anyway, uh, to be young and rich in Hollywood in the 20s, one night, probably around April 1927, she and her friends were partying. And someone drunkenly suggested that they sign on as crew for a banana boat that was leaving for Mexico in the morning. Why not? Why not? This required Florence to disguise herself as a man, which I think she liked. But once she and her friends were aboard, they learned they were not on a banana boat. They were running guns to Mexican revolutionaries. Oh, shit. Upon reaching their destination, the boat was basically hijacked by local authorities because the town was under bombardment by the rebel. Like, anyway, they get stuck in the harbor for six weeks. There are armed men who will not let them leave. At this point... Florence slash Poncho has had enough of all of that. So she and one of the crew members, they like steal a dinghy in the cover of darkness and row away. Once ashore, they bought or stole a horse and a burrow and they set out through the jungle hoping they would not encounter armed patrols or Like fucking Don Quixote? Oh my God. Well, and that, this is when Florence became Poncho. She teased the guy that she had escaped with. Uh, He would become another lifelong friend of hers because, again, she just collects them. 
that he looked like Don Quixote astride his horse, and he told her that she must be his companion, Pancho. It's Uh, not Pancho, It's not Pancho. She tried to correct him, like Sancho Panza, but he said he liked Pancho better, and it turns out that she did too. I I do too. Mm -hmm. So they traversed Mexico from the Pacific coast to the Atlantic coast. Holy fuck. They walked like 200 miles on foot. They partied in Mexico City for Cinco de Mayo, but Amer- they had to pretend they were German because Americans weren't well-liked. And it was just, it was an adventure, right? They once, If they got to water, they would hop a boat to some port and explore cities and ruins. Eventually, they were completely out of money. The American embassy put them on a boat to New Orleans. Oh, my God. And then they hitchhiked and walked and hopped trains back to Pasadena. The whole thing took seven months. She arrived home in November. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) It was not the only big journey that had happened in 1927. However, that May, Charles Lindbergh had completed the first solo nonstop transatlantic flight and became an instant hero. The following year, Amelia Earhart was nicknamed Lady Lindy in the press and became a celebrated uh, aviatrix. Little airstrips were popping up everywhere, and what kind of well-to-do adventurer would Pancho be if she didn't have the freedom of the skies to herself? So she took six hours of flight instruction from an old World War I pilot, and okay. then, then she soloed, oh my God. Uh, earning her flight certificate. I got this. It's different back it's then. Fine. She bought a Travel Air, it's the name of the company, biplane for $5,500, which was a ton of money at the time, but... Okay, this is one of those plane, like old, old, old classic planes. This had an open cockpit. The only instrument it had was an oil gauge. The pilot could check the plane's orientation by looking at a keychain that he or she would hang from the control panel. Altitude was determined by looking over the side. Oh! To check the fuel level, you dropped a piece of string into the tank to see where it stopped being wet. Nope. If you got lost along the way, you flew low over a town and looked for signs at the rail depot. Oh, Jesus. If you needed to know what the wind conditions were like, you would watch laundry hung up on lines in the yards below. Oh. On- <laughs> this is a lot of money, 5500 bucks for a plane that doesn't do anything. On her first lengthy trip, a oh jaunt up to San Francisco, Poncho required no fewer than eight emergency landings. Oh. She was in love. <laughs> uh, she started racing at air shows, picking up a another travel air, the Type R Mystery Ship, which was a racing plane. Uh, there was a woman's air derby, nicknamed the Powder Puff Derby, by Will Rogers, who emceed. Really? Every time women did things back then, the press was all over it, because women weren't supposed to, to do things. Yeah, right. it was like, it's shocking that these women... And they were wearing pants, which itself was scandalous. The scandal. The scandal. So the Powder Puff Derby was a multi-day race in 1929 from Los Angeles to Cleveland. And yeah, it was huge news. Uh, headlines coast to coast. Poncho crashed her plane into a car. Oh, God. That drove onto the runway at the absolute wrong moment, like two days in. And pilot and driver both walked away, which... That's a good crash, but the plane was toast and she was out of the race. She did go on to Cleveland to celebrate anyway with the rest of the... Can't miss out on the party. Like two or three pilots died during that race. 
Good job, Will Rogers. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, it was it was common in the era that races usually air races had a body count, so that one did. Anyway, Poncho still had friends in Hollywood too, so this new passion was yet another way to contribute to film. In 1930, as Trashy Divorce's alum and jewelry tray at parties guy Howard Hughes <laughs> oh. was filming his war epic Hell's Angels, she provided audio he needed for uh, flight sequences by buzzing a series of tethered hot air balloons wired up with sound equipment. Oh my God. She was also Lockheed's first female test pilot. Uh, in 1930, she got a racing plane up to 235 miles an hour, beating Amelia Earhart's previous women's speed record. Whoa. Yeah. Apparently Lockheed Beach, like the aircraft manufacturers liked having women test, like they would promote that they had women test pilots the idea being that if a woman can fly it, it must be really easy. Uh, this plane is so simple. Even a lady can take it out. Like, what misogynist. It is gross. Jerks. Okay. Okay, this is going to blow your mind. For a while, she and a parachutist named Slim Zahnmiller had an act that they called the Poncho Barnes Flying Mystery Circus of the Air. Oh, my God. Um, this is a paragraph from Lauren Kessler's book, The Happy Bottom, Riding Club, The Life and Times of Poncho Barnes. Quote, together they flew to local airfields on Sundays to put on shows and pass the hat. Poncho began with aerobatics, spirals, side slips, inside loops, outside loops, split S-turns, barrel rolls. Then came one of her favorite tricks, a maneuver she and her hangar friends had developed for their own entertainment. She would drop a roll of toilet paper out of the plane holding onto one end. As the roll unwound, she zipped the plane back and forth, cutting the unspooling paper with the wing of the plane as she descended. Oh my God. After that, it was Slim's turn. Poncho took the plane up to a thousand feet and dropped Slim over the field where he would land with precision within a few feet of the appreciative crowd. After a few jumps, when onlookers were no longer wowed, Slim would go out into the crowd and find a pretty young girl to flirt with, sweet-talking her into taking a ride. He would harness her into a spare parachute, and then at a thousand feet, Poncho would dip the wing of the plane, and Slim would give the girl a push while pulling her ripcord. No! No! Poncho perfected the technique of kicking the plane's tail out of the way so the chute could open safely. Then she would put the plane down as quickly as she could, trying to beat the crowd to the site where the girl had landed. Miraculously, none of the girls were hurt. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? That is terrifying. That's terrifying. Terrifying. Oh, my God. The lawsuits. Okay. <laughs> he tried that today. This is the wild, wild west. Okay. Poncho's lifestyle continued to be lavish. She was still living on her inheritance. There were still nonstop parties at the mansion and at her Laguna Beach house overlooking the sea. This was a source of genuine anger for her still living grandmother. She had abandoned, like, Poncho had abandoned her marriage she was still married, but like she was wearing men's attire. She was spending She's been on a seven month tour of Mexico, <laughs> like on foot. You know, there now there was this flying nonsense, and she's got actor friends and deviants, and it's Too much. just all yeah, grandma. Too much, grandma. This will ultimately impact how future inheritances will. Poncho Barnes was terrible with money. Let's just put that out there. To wit. By 1935, Poncho Barnes was broke, spent it all, still had some property. I mean, the depression had rolled in and, you know, the movie, like flying for movies had kind of dried up. 
like everything had kind of dried up. Sure. She couldn't sell the mansion because people couldn't pay top dollars. She couldn't sell airplanes because people like it was she's in a bind. So she sold some properties. She rented some properties and she bought an 80 acre alfalfa ranch in the Antelope Valley of California, north of the San Gabriel Mountains near Muroc Dry Lake, a site that was used by the military and airplane manufacturers to test. It's very flat. It's hard pack. Like it's natural airstrips. So it's a, she had tested Lockheed planes out there herself, which is how she found the, the plot. An army air corps squadron was already living there in the thirties out in the Mojave desert in extremely primitive conditions. So when Poncho arrived with her plane and her horses and her son, who was now a teenager and really could use some wide open spaces and established the Rancho Oro Verde, green gold. Her timing was kind of great. They cut in a dirt airstrip so friends could visit. They built some shacks around the property for guests to stay in. There was already a house and a barn, like it had been an alfalfa ranch. Okay. But she's still married. Yeah. Okay. She has not seen her husband in years. He's Perfect. living He's living in New York City by now. He's, oh. He has been promoted up through they correspond she spent several years turning this place into a reasonably successful working ranch there was a dairy operation then she added hogs she would sell milk and pork into area schools and the military encampments around the valley after a while rancho oro verde took a contract to collect the kitchen trash from the base which she and her hired hands would bring back they would cook it in a huge vat then they would feed it to the hogs who they would later slaughter and then sell back to the base as pork. It's a perfect circle. It's quite an operation. Yep. She remained terrible with money. She, As soon as she would buy something, she would mortgage it to buy something else. It was just got to keep the cash coming in. But she also expanded the 80 acres to 360 acres by the time Whoa. World War II broke out. Okay. She was a shocking figure in the community. I mean, she was well-liked by most, but she was driving a big Cadillac because she loved fancy cars and she grew up rich and whatever. But she's in men's clothes and she is cussing and dirty joke telling on par with the raunchiest of ranch hands. Like, just quite the figure. In 1939, the government created the Civilian Pilot Training Program right up Ponto's alley. So she gets a contract to supply planes and instructors. Eventually, she builds a big hangar on the ranch so that the flight school can be there. This was prep against the German Air Force. Like right. everybody knew war was coming. Notably, her long-suffering husband, I'm glad you brought him up again, um, who she had not seen in like a decade. I'm not sure. Uh, he had been promoted into the National Episcopalian Organization. He'd been living in New York City for years. The two had a very cordial relationship. They corresponded often and warmly. But in, in 1941, he had fallen in love with a woman in New York Aww. and they wanted to get married. So the Reverend C. Rankin Barnes decided that he could live without being a bishop in the church, but he could not live without his new love. He filed for divorce, citing mental cruelty and numerous instances of infidelity. Of course, what was said in the complaint was true, but there was no no-fault divorce at the time. And Pancho was mad. Like this really pissed her off. Oh, Three months after the divorce was finalized, she married one of her flight students, sure. Robert Hudson Nichols Jr. He is 15 or so years younger than she is. Perfect. Was not much of a pilot. Pretty good mechanic. Nobody could figure out why they married. They were broken up two weeks later. So that's two oh, God. divorces. Two weeks? 
Mm-hmm. That's fast. Yeah, he just left the ranch one morning. Yeah. More troublingly, Poncho's flight school was also ended just weeks after that because after the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, the government closed all private airports within 150 miles of the Pacific. Oh, God. Muroc, which, again, had been a tent city of like 17 people who pretty much their job was to clean up the desert floor after bombing practice when Poncho had first arrived, swelled to 10,000 men Whoa. in weeks. They didn't have hangars, but suddenly there were hundreds of planes. The crews had to perform maintenance at night because in the desert sun, you couldn't, it, they were too hot to work with during the day. It was amazing. Tar paper barracks housing 40 men each were thrown up overnight. A mess hall was erected. Like That's incredible. Yeah. The war was on. Base residents joked that at least the place was centrally located. It was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> there was just nothing for the sudden flood of young men to do. There was nowhere they could go to escape the tedium of army life, the pressures of training, the stress of the war. But there was Poncho, having spent some years now collecting thoroughbred horses, having put in a lovely swimming pool at her ranch down the road. There was already a cookhouse where the hands ate. And when the Muroc Flight Test Center's commanding officer, Colonel Clarence Shoup, became a devotee of Poncho's hospitality, she renovated that into a clubhouse with dancing, dining, a piano, a jukebox, a double-sided fireplace to chase out that night chill in the desert. This sounds fantastic. Yep. Brand new hangout. She bought more horses. Riding was a popular recreation activity, and she hired a young wrangler named Dorothy to guide trail rides with hourly and daily riding fee options. It was during the war years that she met husband number three, Don Shalita. He was a past-his-prime dancer who'd been hugely successful in his 20s, but now into his 30s. He had a studio where he taught dance uh, in Philadelphia. There was a hotel that Poncho's family owned, and she had to occasionally go for business. Anyway, that's how they met. So they met in 44. He returned to the ranch with her playing charming host to her raunchy, off-color hostess. It worked for a while. They married in Reno in 1945, and four months later, he packed his bags and headed south to Los Angeles. Oh, God. That's three. Well, that lasted longer than the two weeks. Sure. And this one at least ended well, and they remained close friends. Okay. So, great news, though. With the war over, Poncho's little airstrip could be used again. Civilian flying was allowed over the left coast, and fuel rationing and such was over. So she cut two more airstrips into her land and posted kerosene lamps along them for night flyers and launched Poncho's Fly-In. I-N-N. Got it. Mm -hmm. Anyone could tie down their plane at Poncho's as long as they bought gas and oil there. I think they're like 90 miles north of Los Angeles. So yeah, they're, they're close to a lot. Her Hollywood friends would zip over the San Gabriel Mountains in their planes, while generals, test pilots, aeronautical engineers, Lockheed executives, and more were popping by for some R&R. Just a really big, interesting cultural mix of Hollywood and the military and like the defense contracting industry. What a time to be alive. Yeah. The place was becoming legendary, and soon enough, she was feeling kind of overwhelmed with stop-ins from kind of the wrong sorts of people, just regular people, just city people who weren't right with the vibe, who didn't love aviation and didn't have decades of adventures and stories to share. So she sort of went private 
Becoming a members-only club, the first card was issued to Lieutenant General James Doolittle, an old friend from uh, back in the Daredevil days. He was a legitimate war hero and a flying ace. He had commanded the 8th Army Air Force in Europe and the Pacific, and his stamp of approval was like... A big deal. It was a big deal, yeah, yeah that the first card went to him. She built a 50-foot fish pond in the shape of the Army Air Corps emblem. She knew who buttered her bread and equipped the guest rooms with air conditioning, private bathrooms. These are like outstanding levels of extravagance for the era. So, yes, in theory, it was private, but she was also advertising her modern fly-in dude ranch in Los Angeles papers. It was a weekly rate of $49 per person. And in the summer months, it was not unusual for Poncho to have 100 planes parked on her property. Just, this is a successful operation. Mm-hmm. Except she did not keep records. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my the next sentence here. Her spending and cash management issues never improved. She didn't file taxes. She gave stuff away. She Anyway, um, she wrote to one friend after the war, Come on out. We'll ride a pony, fly a kite, and light cigarettes on $100 bills. Oh, my. Yeah. Her fourth husband was Eugene McKendry, Mac, who arrived at Ponchos in 1946. He came home from the war to divorce papers from oh. his wife. So he came out to Ponchos to work the ranch at the age of 26. She was 45. By now... <gasps> wow! By now, Ponchos, also known as the Happy Bottom Riding Club, allegedly this was about the horses, <laughs> was a fixture in the community of test pilots, flight crews, government contractors, all who were using the Muroc site to pioneer jets. Poncho hired young hostesses from L.A. to make the place even more appealing to the very male community it was serving. They were they were to dance with the men. Um, sure. And she offered a free steak to the first pilot to break the sound barrier. That was Chuck Yeager who wow. got that steak. Afterward, all pilots got a free steak the first time they broke the sound barrier. Wow. Uh-huh. When she and Mac married, he was 32 and she was 51. It was a huge party. Poncho had had some serious health problems, probably stemming from high blood pressure, and had this like fairly gruesome experimental surgery involving two 18-inch incisions the partial removal of four ribs to try to, like, they remove some uh, nerve ganglion. Okay. Anyway. Sounds terrible. Yeah, it was terrible. The recovery was very long, but Mac had been there with her all through. So June 1952, the ceremony was short. It took less than a minute, but the 650 guests, including base commander Al Boyd, who gave her away, and Chuck Yeager again, Feasted on four whole roasted pigs, 80 pounds of potato salad, 16 gallons of jello, and a 50-pound wedding cake, and the booze. Oh, so much booze. Like, during Prohibition, they were flying it in from Mexico. Like, they, they never wanted for, for booze, these pilots. So no one knew it at the time, but that party kind of also represented something of a beginning of the end for the Happy Bottom Riding Club resort that she had evolved out there in the desert. A new commanding officer took over what was now Edwards Air Force Base, early 50s. And, you know, he was also a product of that old open cockpit flying era, but the military was professionalizing, the Cold War was happening, and the government decided that it didn't really want to have neighbors in the Antelope Valley. So. Oh. 
Most of the homesteaders in the area were pushed out. Their properties were condemned un- under eminent domain, took very low money. Pancho sued to try to keep this from happening to her. And then there was a mysterious fire on the property while she was off shopping and it destroyed her home. It just <gasps> like, yeah. Oh, no. The military really played dirty with her all throughout this. They accused her of running a brothel. They ordered base personnel to stay away, which obviously killed the business. She and Mac didn't have much choice, but to relocate, they headed north of the area. Pancho hoped or planned to try to recreate her place there, but she was out of money. And, you know, by now, the base itself had all sorts of amenities. It was a moment in time. I think she was also deeply embittered by, you know, the betrayal of the Air Force. On some level, she believed that her grandfather, the Civil War aeronaut, had founded the Air Force. And then through her nurturing of that crop of test pilots, many of whom died in the desert, you know, she was like the mother of the Air Force. The strain of all of that broke her marriage to Mac. Uh, He moved out, I don't know, I think years before she filed for divorce. That was in 1962. And man, the divorce became quite contentious. Like they were just in litigation. And then Pancho just kind of God, that was kind of how she spent her old age, was just suing various entities. Her bank overcharged her, so she wanted $100,000 or like, it's kind of weird. Yeah, she's writing her own briefs too, which is never a great plan. Anyway, her legend persisted. And in 1971, old friends at Edwards, including astronaut and moonwalker Buzz Aldrin, threw her a 70th birthday party on the base. Amazing. Yeah, she died four years later, likely of breast cancer, in a small stone shack that she had lived in for several years. She was breeding Yorkies at the time. The Air Force gave her son Bill permission to fly over that tract of land where the Happy Bottom Riding Club had been to scatter her ashes. So talk about being in the thick of everything. Poncho Barnes, gender-bending provocateur, adrenaline junkie, friend to all, from all walks of life. Just a remarkable person. I don't have trash cans for it. What a remarkable story. Yeah, open cockpit trash cans, supersonic trash cans. I don't know. Trash cans wandering through Mexico. I, like, I... Push them by surprise out of a plane trash can. There you go. God, that story is going to haunt my nightmares. Yeah, so thank you, Jeremy, for cluing us into that fabulous... American life. That was amazing. Let's take a break. Yes. And we're going to come back with my story yes. about the actress who portrayed yes. Poncho Barnes in a TV movie in the 80s. You got it. Yep. We'll see you on the flip. There's never a wrong time to take a look at the things that are keeping you from living your best life. And if now is your moment, we recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient, and safe professional counseling with your own licensed therapist. BetterHelp's quick questionnaire matches you with a counselor in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time, even between scheduled phone or video sessions. Not clicking with your counselor? No problem. It's free to change. 
BetterHelp is available worldwide and offers specialized expertise that may just not be available where you live. It's also more affordable than traditional counseling, and financial aid is available. It's just never been easier to find a licensed professional counselor who specializes in what you're working through. In fact, so many people are using BetterHelp that they are recruiting counselors in all 50 U.S. states. We want you to start living your happiest life today. As a Trashy Divorces listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com trashy. Join more than 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Visit betterhelp.com trashy. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Dear listeners, we interrupt your regularly scheduled ad time with a public service announcement from our friends at the Oak Tree Group. September is National Preparedness Month. As explained on ready.gov, National Preparedness Month is an observance each September to raise awareness about the importance of preparing for disasters and emergencies that could happen at any time. The 2021 theme is Prepare to Protect. Preparing for disasters is protecting everyone you love. It was started in 2004 by the Federal Emergency Management Agency to encourage Americans to take steps to prepare for emergencies in their homes, businesses, schools, and communities. The ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you get financially prepared. Things happen and everyone should have an emergency fund. It is the foundation for any financial plan. If you would like some help getting your financial preparedness plan together, call the women of the Oak Tree Group at 770-319-1700 or visit their website at www.theoaktreegroup.net. Mention this announcement for your free one-hour financial preparedness conversation with the Oak Tree Group. The contact details can be found on www.theoaktreegroup.net. And for those of you who celebrate, happy cat month. <laughs> Let's be honest, whether you're back in the office or still in your sweatpants working from home, life's day-to-day responsibilities lack the fun we all want and deserve. If you're looking for a sign to use some of that hard-earned PTO and have some much-needed fun, look no further. FunJet Vacations is a one-stop shop for all your vacation needs, and as leaders in the industry, FunJet Vacations gives you a fast, easy, and fun way to build and book your next vacation with exclusive package deals to all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. For a limited time, our listeners can use promo code FUNJET75. 
Funjet 75 for $75 off your next Funjet vacation at Ryu Hotels and Resorts. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly resort or an adults-only getaway, there's a Ryu Hotel and Resort for you. To get started, just go to funjet.com or contact your travel advisor and you'll be out of office in no time. Offer is only valid at funjet.com when booked by October 15th for travel through December 2021. Restrictions apply. Alicia, you have a, a guitar hero. I do have a guitar hero. What a tale. What a tale. I have to weave for you this week. We're going to shred it here on Trashy Divorces. It was a love story. It was a love story of 1980, mm-hmm. the wedding of 1981, everyone's favorite girl next door, Valerie Bertinelli, and every mother's, I'm not going to say nightmare because I don't feel that way about Eddie Van Halen, but there are a lot of question marks that the world has about these two. Mm-hmm. It is your classic good girl, bad boy, sure, love affair, and they rock the headlines. From 1980, through a pretty long and at least successful on the surface marriage, until it wasn't. Today in the Trashy Divorces tradition, let's get into it. We shall begin with our groom, Edward Van Halen. Born in the Netherlands, January 26th. 1955, he is an Aquarius man. Dad is a jazz pianist. Eddie has an older brother named Alex. Family's doing their thing. They're going to move to Pasadena in 1962. And it's a whole new world. I know. Eddie and Alex, like Dad, both playing piano. But naturally, it's early 60s. The musical revolution is happening around them. And here come the Beatles. And here come the Dave Clark Five. Eddie is in fourth grade when the first band he's in gets together, where they will play at elementary school recess. (laughs) For both brothers, the piano in this musical revolution does begin to lose its appeal, and guitars and drums are taking over. Now, the interesting thing here is that Alex is learning how to play flamenco guitar, and Eddie is working every day on a paper route to pay for the drums that he bought. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But working the paper route doesn't leave a lot of time for Eddie to actually play the drums, and Alex really likes the drums. So Alex's home war, playing Mm. the drums, becomes much better at the drums. So on to guitar for Eddie it is. Eddie will pay 70 bucks for his first guitar, and it is on. He will learn every Eric Clapton song he can (laughs) by ear. That's how Eddie Van Halen learns to play. He doesn't read music. He watches it. He learns to play by hearing it Hmm. and watching it done. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. The brothers have started a band by 1972. They're playing high schools and, you know, then parties, working their way into clubs, like eventually playing at Whiskey A Go-Go. They're kind of hitting. By 1974, Van Halen is founded. And on a very, very lucky day, Gene Simmons of Kiss fame... Mm -hmm. Sees the guys, and he's like, whoa, fellas, I'm going to help you out. And he does. Yeah, because Kiss was like the biggest rock band in the world at the time. Yeah, yeah. he's like, I'm going to get you guys set up with some studio demos. Let's let's do this. First, he probably had to convince them that he was, in fact, a member of Kiss. (laughs) (laughs) By 78, band is releasing their first record, another in 1979, and it's touring and breaking through with definitely a different kind of music than the folk or disco sounds of the right. 70s. Like, 
brand new stuff. Yeah. And the band is all in. Counterpoint. Which will get Eddie to August 29th, 1980, playing a gig in Shreveport, Louisiana at the Hirsch Memorial Coliseum. Van Halen is rocking their 1980 World Invasion Tour. Lots of dates they've already played by then. It's a huge tour. And this is where we're going to leave Eddie for a moment in our proverbial Trashy Divorces Depot, Shreveport, Louisiana, in order to meet his bride. Valerie Ann Bertinelli was born April 23rd, 1960, into what she says is an amazing family. Dad's an executive for GM. Mom is a homemaker. She has three brothers. There's a lot of love, but there's a lot of moving. She compares it to being a military kid. Like every year we were in a different city and it's hard to make friends, settle into something, yeah, find, yeah. you know, that kind of level of stability. And Valerie will mention to her parents, you know, maybe she would like to try singing or acting. And her parents wanting to get their kid out of her shell from all the moving and Okay, let's let's give her something she enjoys. We'll enroll Valerie into the Tammy Lynn Academy of Artists. And Valerie will understand pretty early that she's never going to sound like Karen Carpenter. Her first dream is to be a singer, so she mm-hmm. sings along with Karen Carpenter. And she's like, yeah, it's not that. probably not going to work. But then acting is going to become a thing. And by 11, she'll land her first role. Honestly, she gets the role because she fits into the clothes for this Easter commercial. Like, she's trying to go get a job to get in the union. She's been interviewing for years, and she needs a union card to get the work, but she can't get a union card until she has the work. So, lucky break, she fits the clothes. Huzzah! Welcome to the union, kid. And she works. She goes to school and works for, like, the next four years, compatibly, And Tammy Lynn, her drama coach, will ask her kind of in this time about her goals. What do you what do you want to do with this? And Valerie will answer with the precociousness of a 13 year old. I want to be in a television series. And when I walk down the street, I want people to recognize me. Hmm. I mean, that's that's goal. Well, little Valerie is about to get her wish Mm -hmm. at 15. She is specifically called to audition for Norman Lear who is making a show, not a bad guy to audition for, and he's looking for a teenager to portray Barbara Cooper, youngest kid of a divorced mom with a wild child sister, tackling all the subjects that you have come to know and expect in a Norman Lear program. Fun little spider web here. The series, One Day at a Time, is originally called All About Us, and it is written by Whitney Blake and Alan Mannings, they're a husband and wife writing duo team. But before they become a writing duo team, Whitney Blake is an actress. She'll play Mrs. Baxter in the TV series Hazel back in the 1960s. Two fun adjacent spiderwebs. Whitney Blake is the person that Whitney Houston is named after. Oh. Also, Whitney Blake is the mother of actress and legend Meredith Baxter. Oh. I know. Okay. Spiderwebs. They delight me. All right. Back to Valerie. Because that's who the story is about. She'll go through four auditions for All About Us. And Norman Lear loves her. Valerie reminds Norman Lear of his own daughter. They're exactly the same age. And soon enough, the show All About Us will become One Day at a Time. And Valerie's going to have her wish. One Day at a Time becomes a Sunday night staple in the CBS lineup. 
It's going to premiere December 1975. And the television show will be a consistent top 10 or top 20 show for its eight, nine year run. It'll move around a lot in the lineup, but it's a hit. Valerie Bertinelli is a star. She is the girl next door. Friendly, relatable. She's a girl that girls like. She's a girl that boys like. At 15, she's a star and she'll continue to shoot daily. While still going to acting classes (laughs) and filming TV movies during summer hiatus. She's dedicated. Busy. Mm -hmm. I guess you got to run with it while it's there because it can be so fleeting. That's it. By 1980, Valerie Bertinelli is 20 years old. She's dating Steven Spielberg. She'll audition for Raiders of the Lost Ark, a part which she does not get. But hey, 1980, y'all, weird times. In the summer of that year, June, end of June, June 22nd for AFTRA, July 21st for SAG, actors go on strike. Valerie's plans for the summer have been canceled. So when Valerie's brother Patrick calls, hey, sis, come on down to Shreveport. I got tickets for Van Halen's World Invasion Tour and backstage passes too. Valerie Bertinelli's like, why not? Sure. I'm not doing anything here anyway. It'll be good to go home. Get a little break. (laughs) Valerie does not listen to Van Halen. Doesn't really know their music, but she finds an old cassette that belonged to her brother and she's jamming out and she's listening to the guitar and she's like, wow, that's pretty cool stuff. Like that guy's really talented. And then Valerie will find a picture of Eddie Van Halen and think, whoa, he's pretty cute too. And it is here in the backstage dressing area of the Coliseum on an August night that Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen meet. And from the reactions of people in the room talking about it, apparently it's love at first sight. Hmm. When you know, you know. This is August 1980. The actor's strike will end at the end of September, being ratified in October. But during this time and after, Valerie Bertinelli is seen at a lot of Van Halen gigs. (laughs) And they're a thing. And the tabloids cannot stop writing about it. People are gossiping. People are talking. Like, she's our national sweetheart. She's every mother's dream, and she's dating who? Eddie Van Halen, that long-haired bad boy? La Scandale. Okay. The coupling to the two of them makes perfect sense. She's 20. He's 25. He's still living with his parents. I was going to say, I don't actually think he's that much of a bad boy. Like, not at that time. No, she'll, in all these interviews, I had such a fun time in all these interviews from the early 80s researching this. She'll call him out in every single one. Babe, you were still living with your parents when we met. Like, he's not as wild and crazy, I don't think, at that time as he's made out to be. And they bring out something in each other. She kind of according to people, stabilizes him. He makes her a little bit more adventurous. Wilds her up a little bit. Opposites attract. Mm -hmm. It's love or whatever passes for it. I mean, it's not like Ozzy Osbourne or any, right? Like it's Eddie Van Halen. It just, I feel like there's just a different, sure, 25 year old rock star. Got it. But I mean, right. I feel like there were options in the day that would have been much more mind-bending. Okay. Well, the mind-bending thing here is that they don't move in together. Hmm. She will not move in with him before they get married. And I think, draw your own conclusions, it's hot, it's heavy. What, is she going to live with his parents? (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, they are walking down the aisle eight months later, two days before her 21st birthday wow. in April of 1981. God. They meet eight months later. They get married. Woohoo! I mean, when you know, you know. When, when you know, like. 20 it's it's so young but but they do they love each other Mm -hmm. and they lead this life that is very quiet and traditional they live in the hollywood hills they have a new kitten they take off they talk about taking off for this vacation getaway up to big bear and don't have a place that they've reserved so they land in this cabin with one chair and a bed that's uninhabitable and you hear them both talk about it like we had the best time like they're with each other, and that's what it's about. And you wouldn't think they'd be compatible, but alas, it appears that it is true love. Valerie, at this time in an interview, will scoff at all of the public conjecture that just won't keep them out of the light. And she'll say, if other people think I'm not happy, it's their problem. Like, they are just blissful. And people want to give them grief, but mm-hmm. for 20 years, y'all, there's love. There's a Child, 10 years into, their son Wolfgang is born in 1991. Again, a lot of excellent footage <laughs> with interviews from the 1980s. There's a great one with Maria Shriver. There's one with Kathy Lee Gifford. After watching these, I wanted a TV dinner real bad. But trying to provide a 20-year perspective, now that we are done with it in the fullness of time, I'm going to try to piece it together for you, friends. All of the sources that we use, again, on TrashyDivorces.com. And things for the couple look pretty great on the outside for a long time, but there are cracks from the beginning if you examine it very closely. Love can conquer a lot for a long time, but maybe not all of it. From the beginning, because he's discouraged by his band, by his management, like, do not marry this girl. Like, it's too much, too quick, too fast. Interesting. So after the marriage, he's talking to friends like, whoa, maybe I got tied down too fast. Because, I mean, he's on a ride. The band is making music. They have an album a year practically for the first five years. Like 1984, they've been married three years, I was going to say the mid-80s were just an outstanding era for that band. Well, the history of Van Halen is not what this story is about, but... Let me state, they're busy. They're really busy. They have add-ins and replacements and drama. There's David Lee Roth leaving and Sammy Hagar coming in. Mm -hmm. And then they're looking to replace him with Patti Smith. And, oh, Eddie's making Beat It for Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. all of these stories probably deserve their own podcast, but it's not trashy divorces. Trying to stay focused here. Valerie is busy working, too. And, well, the two are playing. A lot as well. There's drug use. In her memoir, Losing It, Valerie will say that both of them were in possession of cocaine on their wedding day. (laughs) As we filled out the forms at home, we each held a little vial of coke. It doesn't really bode well for the marriage, Mm. I don't think. Valerie will (laughs) reveal to today that she did have an affair four years into the marriage. She'll say it was a shame And it was a guilt that I carried with me for a very long time. And I don't like that. So I wanted to get that out of me. So this would be about 1985 or so, which is where this really interesting interview with Kathy Lee Gifford comes in. And Kathy Lee asks Valerie, how do you deal with all the groupies? And Valerie says, it's difficult. I go out with them a lot. But when I don't, if I call them and somebody else answers the phone, Mm -hmm. the locks are changed. 
Mm. And he's like, that's not true. And she's like, don't test me. You know what's happened before. Like, it's a really interesting exchange between the two of them. Like, they're on camera. Mm -hmm. But something's happening underneath there that's a little fascinating. Yeah. But she'll go on. Like, we have communication and trust. And I trust him. I can't not trust him. If I don't trust him, we have nothing. There's drug use. There's adultery on both sides. I did come across something that I'm trying to verify. But in the late 1980s, rumor is that Eddie Van Halen will spend his Saturdays scrapbooking and people come over and Valerie makes snacks. I don't know. More on this when I can actually validate this. Okay. The couple has a son in 1991. Things are looking great. But like a lot of others, the September 11th attacks Mm. really affect Valerie Bertinelli. She'll say, I got tired of once again hiding and thinking this is not the life I want for myself, for Wolfie, especially, and I don't want to keep treating Ed so badly. Hmm. Mm-hmm. She'll be interviewed again in 2009, long after the separation and divorce. And there was a lot to this. She's really honest. And she'll say, I was madly in love. I thought he was my future and be all end all 30 years later. I love and adore him, but I am not in love with him. We like each other again, but you don't know how to give and receive love at such a young age. She, at this point in this interview, is in another long-term relationship and with Tom Vitale. And she'll say, I think my relationship now proves that. Love at an older age is more enjoyable. The carnal is still there, but the intellectual is there too. I wasn't able to have that then. She says she had a million something is not right moments that any one of them would have been fine. But when you added it all up, it became unbearable. And she was the first one, she says, in the marriage to say, hey, you need to change this or I'm done. Change this was Eddie getting diagnosed with cancer in 2000. And she wants him to quit smoking. Like, you, dude, you have tongue and throat cancer where is your priority for your health but he is so deep in his addiction at this point he does not quit he will not quit Hmm. so she is the first one i mean he was addicted to more things than just cigarettes right uh, like alcohol drugs yeah there was was a lot going on yeah and she kind of sets it out she's like we got a kid you need to change this or i'm done and he doesn't argue with her he's like fine let's be done wow She said we were both stubborn. It took a long time. We had a young son. This is so key. I just thought this was so smart. Staying together for the kids is the biggest mistake a lot of people can make, as opposed to two healthy, kind parents who live separately apart from each other. She said he wasn't a real jerk. I would have left him earlier if he was a jerk. But 20 years in... We don't want the same thing. Neither one of us is fighting for this. You're not going to change. I need you to change. I need different things, right? It's the most common story right. I think we tell. Yeah. I mean, when when a long marriage ends, I, I think it often is just that a- accumulation of like, actually, I think I want my life to look this way. Well, any one of those things would have been fine. But when you added them all yeah. up, it was unbearable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Eddie, again, first diagnosed with cancer in 2000. He's not going to quit. To his credit, though, I didn't know this. Eddie Van Halen 
will fund a cancer research center hmm. in addition to holding three patents for guitar. Oh, three individual things that he does to trick out a guitar that he holds the patents for. Like mm-hmm. Eddie Van Halen, a man of surprises. Mm-hmm. That's an Aquarius man for you. The couple does separate in 2001, although the divorce is not final until 2007. Back from that earlier quote, Valerie will meet Tom Vitale in 2004, and when they meet, it's instant. They will both talk about when they meet, it was like we were family. Hmm. It was just, it was done. And sometimes when you know, but when you do it a little older, right, you're coming at it from a very different experience. They get married in 2011, Valerie and Tom, and they're happy as two clams, those two. Eddie will marry again to Janie Leshevsky. She's an actress and stuntwoman. She owns a PR firm, which is how they meet originally within the Valerie and Eddie are separated, but not yet divorced period. And Janie and Eddie work together for a long time, like a year and then fall in love. He'll propose in Tiffany's in Hawaii. The two marry in a small 2009 ceremony that Valerie attends. Eddie will come to Valerie's wedding to Tom in 2011. Like both seem like mm-hmm. healthy, kind parents. Right. Living apart. Like they're so concerned about giving their son the very best. Right. That no, that's a fairly evolved mm-hmm. situation there. It's amazing. And both happy in their respective marriages and doing the best they can. I mean, I think she said it best with, we still love each other, but we're not in love. You know, it took us a long time to like each other again, but then we did. And it seems like it went that way up into October 6, 2020, when Eddie does pass away at the age of 65. Mm -hmm. He is there with his wife, Janie, his ex-wife, Valerie, and his son, Wolfie, at his bedside. His cause of death was listed as a stroke, but at the time he was battling tongue, throat, and skin cancer. Eddie Van Halen, quite a warrior. And it seems like these two always loved each other, but the relationship had run out of steam Mm -hmm. after those decades. After Eddie Van Halen's death, Valerie will post on Instagram and write, 40 years ago, my life changed forever when I met you. You gave me one true light in my life, our son Wolfgang. Through all your challenging treatments for lung cancer, you kept your gorgeous spirit and that impish grin. I am so grateful Wolfie and I were able to hold you in your last moments. I will see you in our next life, my love. After that, I don't, trash cans? Like, I don't know. Two kids, young love is a powerful thing. Two decades is a hell of a run. And y'all managed to keep it classy all the way around. Mm -hmm. However many trash cans there are, I know they're all living in a backstage dressing room in the Coliseum in Shreveport, Louisiana in 1980. We're just going to leave them there. Seems good. (laughs) That is the trashy divorce of Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen. You got me there with that last quote. God, I got me there with that last quote. Yeah. What a journey this Mm -hmm. week has been. Indeed. What a flight path. (laughs) thank you everybody for tuning in we're going to be back wednesday for you with trashy breakups with the last of this season's trashy breakups we're almost at the end of season 11 y'all i'm bringing you warren Beatty part two you know i wasn't going to keep you waiting too long for that one nobody does it better than old warren 
If you need extra trash candy in the meantime, where can everybody go to get some free episodes, Stacey? Just plug bit.ly slash trash candy into your browser. You need more trash candy than that? You can get ad-free and early episodes eight times a month for two bucks a Mm -hmm. month over on Patreon. You want to throw in a little more cash to support us, which we really appreciate. We have almost 800 episodes, four new episodes every single week, depending on what level you're on. And that's patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Thank you for that. Not sure if you said that. No, I don't think I did. I'm (laughs) still just trying to set the plane down. Yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, we're going to have to go ahead and jump out of this episode. (laughs) Let's do it. Hey, tremendous big love to y'all. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you back on Wednesday. And until we meet again, keep your hands clean. Oh, keep those hearts trashy. Keep flying high. Whew. Have an amazing week, y'all. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.